The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and special episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, man, how's it going? Things are going swell here. Still a little warm. It's more muggy. It's got that rain rolling in and just makes everything sticky. Don't really care for it. That does not sound fun, but it's actually been kind of cooler here, so it's not been too terribly bad. Knock on wood somewhere, but knock on wood somewhere as you look around for wood. Yeah, I was too. Shut up. <laughs> anyway, Tom, let's uh, not beat around the bush here. Let's get our guest on that has graciously agreed to come on and help educate us. So, Dr. Michael Nagel, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much. I'm uh, glad to be here. And we're uh, excited to have you here. Did you have a good day today, sir? Yes, I had a good day. Good. Well, it's better than train wrecks, which some days <laughs> the office can be. So, Well, we had a good day. We were on time and got our patients seen and nothing was too uh, outlandish or out of control. It is, on time is always yeah. a positive thing. <laughs> I was just about to say, it is amazing to me after moving from hospital to the office, how happy I am just when things are on time the way they're supposed to be it's amazing how wonderful i feel at the end of the day where i'm like i was supposed to see that patient from 2 to 2 30 and that's what i did like it's just it's a great feeling that's really hard to describe if you're not always behind all the other times so which i usually am it happens so. <laughs> i hate it when we uh when we get bogged down and sometimes it just happens you have a very complicated patient and it takes more time and, and then everything sort of kicked back. It's tough. Yeah. I usually have to explain to the next patient. I'm just like, sorry, things happen. And I just try to move forward, but it does set that domino effect. Yeah. <laughs> now every patient subsequent is now going to be 15 minutes late. Like, oh man. So it does happen, sir, but we are glad to have you on the show. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? What you do? Yeah. I'm what is called a wound care doctor. I manage patients with chronic non-healing wounds in Pittsburgh, Kansas. And we have a wound care clinic and we provide a broad spectrum of services to folks who've got diabetic ulcers, uh, pressure ulcers, venous stasis ulcers, and sort of an odd assortment of other atypical ulcers. And we provide them with what they need to heal most of the time. Not Nothing's perfect, but most of the time we can get them healed. So how long have you been in wound care? I've been doing wound care a little over 10 years. 
Oh, nice. So is actually, I guess it's 11 now. Yeah. <laughs> so wound care was like a fellowship. What is your base? Well, I practiced general surgery for 25 years in Joplin, Missouri, and then transitioned as I grew older into wound care and finally just started doing just wound care. Well, that is fantastic. Did anything make you more interested in wound care than anything else? Well, wound care is a very interesting field. One of the things that fascinated me as I got into it is how much basic science has been done and just in the last 20, 30 years in understanding the physiology of wound healing, tissue regeneration, and all of those features that feed into healing a chronic wound. 99% of the wounds that occur in the United States heal without a problem. The wounds that we see in the wound center are ones that for underlying reasons, usually host factors, aren't going to heal without expertise. And that's what we provide for these patients. Some of the patients, we, we've got one guy here who's had his wounds for 20 years. Oh, wow. And never been able to get them healed. And what we've healed two out of his four. He's got one that covers probably half of his left calf and we've got it about halfway healed. So we're, we're making progress, but it's slow. Chronic wounds are chronic because they're very complex. There's a bunch of different factors usually that are feeding into the fact that it's a non-healing wound and you kind of, it's, it's like a puzzle. You have to figure out all the different pieces and try and correct them. So it's a very challenging. So I guess the short answer is I found it interesting and that's why I went into it. No, I I was going to say, I think that wound care does amazing work. I thoroughly enjoy sending patients to wound care centers and then, you know, with a wound that is clearly beyond anything that I'm going to be able to, to handle in family practice. And then to see them come back, you know, sometimes months later, but still coming back. And then it's just an entirely different wound and it just looks amazing. I think that's great. Well, I found it very rewarding and I'm an older gentleman. And so it's nice because there's no, not up all night treating a somebody with a huge trauma or something like that. So it's, it's something I can do physically at my age. Well, sir, this is, and I was going to say, before we go on, I was actually going to say, no, I'm glad you went long. That's the whole point of us doing the podcast. We want to hear all the detail. That's the fun part. So no, that was a great answer. I think it's time for us, Ben, to let's do some social media shout out so we can let people know the things we're going to be talking about today. And we can move forwards. All right. Well, if you like the show, and we know that you do, if you're listening to it, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast. Or you can find us on the web. We're at www.justsomepodcast.com. Our emails, admin at justsomepodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check out our merchandise store, justsomepodcast.com slash shop. Tom, what else can they do to help us out? They can go to our website. They can scroll down to just about the bottom of the page. They'll see a little banner for Amazon affiliate link shopping. They can click on that before they put anything in their basket or before they do any looking around. And then anything that they purchase after that point helps the show out a little bit. It's free to them and they won't even know we were there. So we would really appreciate it if you guys continue to use it because you guys do. I would like to think it's because you hear my voice and think about me, but All I know is that you guys are doing it and we really appreciate it and it helps out the show. So thank you very much, Michael. 
Is there yes. anything that you want to talk about before we get into the show? Maybe introduce the topic you're here to talk about. You mean like peripheral arterial disease? <laughs> that would be it, sir. <laughs> or maybe the foundation and kind of give us a little background and then we'll go, go forward from there. Okay. Well, again, I'm in wound care and one of the challenges that we encounter in wound care is people who have insufficient arterial supply to their feet and the save a leg, save a life program is designed to increase uh, community awareness of this problem because 40% of people who have peripheral arterial disease or peripheral vascular disease, it can be called, are unaware that they have the problem. And 20% of people over 65 in the United States have peripheral arterial disease. So it's a significant problem and it can lead to ulcers that don't heal, gangrene, and amputation. Save a Leg, Save a Life is designed to help the community become aware of this disease and support people who've had amputations or who are going through treatment for their arterial disease. And so because September is Peripheral Artery Disease or PAD Awareness Month, this foundation is doing the White Sock Challenge. Right. The White Sock Challenge is asking people to pose for pictures and post it on their website of the group in, in all in white socks. And we did one, that. One white sock. One white sock. We did that a couple of days ago. And then you post it on their, you, you post it on their website and it's showing support. And a quick shout out. I believe that was Tammy in the background and just yes. some podcasts would love to say thank you. A big hearty thank you to Tammy for helping thank get this to show Tammy. put together. So yep. I, I know she can't hear us right now, but I hope she hears the recording. Yes. And she knows that the entire world just heard us thank her for putting <laughs> the show together. So cool. And also, sir, just to let you know, we do aim at mid-level providers and other healthcare professionals, but we do have an actually a very large non-healthcare following. So there might be times you hear us saying PAD and then explaining what it is briefly. That's just so our non-healthcare people can try and keep up. Sure. You bet. Okay. All, All right, right. So Ben, we'll be ready to get into our story that you may have missed. Yep. The headline is placebos may have benefits even when people know they are taking them. So there was a new study that was published in Nature Communications, and it was from Michigan State University, University of Michigan, and Dartmouth College. And this new study found that even when researchers tell people that they will receive a placebo and it contains no active ingredients, it still produces a positive neurobiologic effect. So in the clinical trials, so the authors conducted two experiments where participants viewed 40 emotionally charged images. Uh, 30 of the images were negative and 10 were neutral. And so they then told the control group that there was not a placebo effect. They told the other group that there was a, they're going to use a saline solution nasal spray, told them it was a placebo, but told them that the substance could reduce the emotional impact of the images that they were about to view. And upon that, they suggest that the non-deceptive placebo was physiologically calming the participants. Tom? So basically, there's a placebo effect for the placebo effect. That's what it sounds like to me. Yes. The, even if they know it's a placebo, <laughs> that it's still giving them the biologic effect of, in, in this case, it was calming. I wonder if there is some kind of link between 
knowing you're going to take something, even if you know there's no active ingredient in it, just the physical act of doing something tricks your brain into thinking that this could be something good. I mean, there certainly could be something to that. I mean, you know, you hear patients who are trying to quit smoking, you know, chewing yeah. straws and things like that. So, I mean, maybe there is something in the brain that tells them, oh, you took something, so there must be some effect to it. Well, I understand that, but people are like, for that example, they know that they're chewing on a straw to keep that oral fixation going that they associate with smoking. But in the placebo effect of the placebo effects, I don't know what else to call it. They literally know that they're not taking a medicine. So they can't even be tricking themselves into thinking it's medicine. (laughs) They're just shooting saline up their nose. I don't, that's a that's a new one. I've never heard of something like that. Just reporting the study, sir. Just reporting just report. the study. So, uh, Michael, if you have a patient with a really bad wound and you just tell him to think positively about the wound, do you think that would heal it? No, I. I <laughs> well, I, I didn't I, think I, so, but <laughs> attitude is huge, though. I'm, I mean, I, I don't think we completely understand the effects physiologically of a person's attitude. There are some people that are so down, it's really hard to get them to take progressive steps to, to heal their wounds. And so, I don't know, you know, something like that. I think in clinical practice, as you guys know, there's a lot to the touch and the approach. I mean, there's a classic study where they were treating hypertension and they had two groups of physicians and one group of physicians was instructed that they had to sit down and they had to look the patient in the eye and they had to touch them during the interview. And the other group of physicians just did whatever they do. That both groups had the same protocol of medications that they were going to use to control the hypertension in the patients. So they, they were using the exact same protocol. You know, if the blood pressure was this, they gave them this, whatever. But at the end of the study, the patients that were touched and were looked at and the doctor sat down in the room, they did better they had their blood pressure better controlled. So there, there's a personal thing in medicine that I think at this point is poorly understood and is kind of intangible. That makes sense. I was going to say, please let us know, actually, sir, because you have got a lot more experience. So have you, I was going to ask, but I guess you pretty much already answered it. Is there something that you can help guide patients? Like, have you found in your practice that, if you take them down a certain road, hey, for diabetes, we try and say, you know, watch your diet, get some exercise, stuff like that. Is there something that you do with your patients um, that you suspect of possibly or, you know, have peripheral artery disease? Like, what are some things that you start doing with those patients to help them out? Well, again, in my experience, getting patients involved in making decisions and Uh, involved in recognizing how important what they do is for their result is huge. And my nurses are great. We have a bunch of whiteboards in each one of the rooms and the nurses uh, just from on their own come up with little sayings. Like one of the sayings they put up there is that you're responsible for who you are in 10 years. And so like if somebody's smoking, we try to emphasize to them that they're taking care of themselves 10 years from now. And that if 
they don't take good care of themselves now, they're going to pay the price in 10 years. So I, I'll tell the patient, I said, you know, there's a lady named Peggy who's 74. That Peggy's sitting in front of me and she's 64. And I say, there's a lady named Peggy who's 74 who's really having some trouble breathing. And she wishes that you would take care of that for her, you know, to try and make them understand that there are consequences to what they do today. And it may not be for 10 years or 20 years, but they're going to be living it. I like that approach. That's very interesting. I may have, I may have to steal that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. It gets some people to think. I, I think the lady that I've used it on most prominently is still smoking, <laughs> but she's cutting back. So, you know, well, you guys know you you have patients that smoke and they say, well, it's my one vice or they have, there's all kinds of excuses they get. But I oh, think yeah. the more that we can make them aware of the consequences of their actions, the more therapeutic we can be. Well, one of the things, and I know people that listen to the show have heard it before, and I know Ben and I have spoke about it before, but especially with my new patients when they're established with me in the office, is I like to make sure that they realize I will work a, as hard at their health as they're willing to. But like you said, if you know you're smoking and it's hurting you, I'm going to do everything I can to help you. But if you're unwilling to quit, there's not a lot I can do to fix the oncoming consequences that you know you're doing to yourself. Yeah. And I give them this, the straight up, I'm like, it's your body, but you are really, you really know, it's not like the science isn't out on smoking, for example, like we need to get ahead of this. So I've never used the approach though, of 10 years down the road and that visualization and letting them talk themselves into treatment. Yeah. I like well, it gives them a picture of, I am going to be 10 years older, hopefully. I mean, the other option is not good. <laughs> The other option is <laughs> it's true. And what is it going to be like 10 years from now? I mean, you know, if you have somebody that smokes for 40 years, it's ugly at the end. And you guys know that. Absolutely. They spend the last six months or a year of their life not being able to get enough oxygen to their tissues. It's like drowning for six months. I, I can't imagine how uncomfortable it is. Well, and I am hoping I personally never have to find out. And it's one of those things, again, when someone is smoking, I try and tell them, I'm like, it's not like this is a secret. This isn't something you don't know is going to happen, but they don't see the consequence now. So yeah. I think that's why I really like this approach of saying, hey, you know, you need to think about what's going to happen 10 years down the road. But I also have difficulty with talking to them about it sometimes because if they don't want to, I don't know what else I can do to to help them it's like okay they just don't want to i don't know what else to to do with that so that's that's one of the as a new practitioner or new to medicine i still feel like i'm having to work through that well i've been doing healthcare now for god knows 40 years uh, yeah so 45 years and one thing that i have learned over that time and only recently is that people are more responsive if you're not judgmental yeah. What I try to do is approach them with the facts and just say, look, this is what happens when we do this. And if they're a smoker or they're diabetic and they're uncontrolled or they're obese, I try my damnedest to not be judgmental or accusatory or condemning to them because that just builds a wall. 
if you can be sympathetic and, and say things like, how can I help you approach this? Or what can we do to help you address this? I think they feel much more engaged and, and they're more likely to respond. If you kind of come in and point your finger at them and say, you got to quit smoking, you got to lose weight, you've got to get your diabetes under control, and you give them a list of do's or don'ts, uh, that turns them off. I don't get good responses with that, but it took me a long time to learn that. And, you know, I had a patient recently who came into the office and this person is obese and it was like her second or third visit with me. And she told me at the end of the visit, she said, I felt so much more comfortable. Like her blood pressure was probably 20 points lower than she said it had been at, at her previous provider's office. And it was because I didn't approach it judgmentally. It's like she said, I knew I gained weight from the COVID, you know, the COVID-15 as everybody's calling it. She's like, but you never want, you didn't make me feel bad for it. And so I do think that that is a huge thing to not be judgmental, but try to be helpful, like you said. So I think that's a great, great tip. Seems like it to me. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm doing better about trying to be sort of their colleague and explain to them the consequences of what they're doing. And some people continue to ignore you and just go on about their business and eat yeah, ding dongs. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask. So basically I can blame COVID for me eating chicken wings and gaining weight. That's what Ben said. That's it what I not- heard. <laughs> I'm kidding, Ben. So in your wound care practice then, I mean, how prevalent are, is PAD and PVD? We see it quite a bit. Again, we're seeing people who have chronic ulcers that don't heal. So it's a selected portion of the population. But where we commonly see it, obviously smokers, uh, but you also increase the prevalence of peripheral arterial disease. The single greatest risk factor for peripheral arterial disease is age. If you're over 65, one out of five people have significant arterial disease after 65. It's also diabetes is a high risk factor for peripheral arterial disease. And it's a significant component of the people that we see that have diabetic foot ulcers. I don't have the statistics, but in my experience, I would say probably about a third of the people who have diabetic foot ulcers uh, also have significant arterial disease. And we're sending them to vascular surgeons or interventionists for attention to their arterial disease. So it's a significant problem. But again, the three most important risk factors are age, that's number one, smoking is a huge factor, and then diabetes. Lesser risk factors are things like obesity and hypertension and inactive lifestyle. You know, activity and eating healthy and keeping your cholesterol under control, managing your high blood pressure, all of those things will help reduce your risk of peripheral arterial disease, but just getting old is probably the single most significant risk factor. I tell my patients frequently, if I could stop the aging process, I would be a millionaire, but unfortunately I can't. And so that's where we're at. Yeah. The world's not set up that way. (laughs) I was going to say, I think we've been going about this healthcare thing all wrong. I don't need to stop them from smoking or anything. Apparently I just need to stop them from aging and then nothing else matters. It's all good from that point. It's gravy. Well, yes. <laughs> maybe you should go into the Mississippi swamps and look for Ponce de Leon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, say, oh man, where's that guy at? He's only been hiding for a couple hundred years, so yeah. I should be able to find him anytime. And I do think it's really interesting how well wound care and vascular work well together, you know, because it, and it's one of those where it's a reciprocal type relationship. You know, they have peripheral artery disease or they have, you know, venous stasis and that's making 
the ulcerations in the wounds worse. And so getting those veins opened up and those arteries open back up then helps their wounds heal. So, I mean, I think that's a great relationship. I think you guys work really, really well together. Right. We operate with a paradigm that has nine essential steps of healing. And step number one is to confirm that the patient has adequate arterial supply to the wounded area. The last thing you want to do is spend three months of time, money, and opportunity trying to heal a wound if they don't have good arterial supply. So we always, with every new patient we see, we always confirm that they have adequate arterial supply. And if it's a questionable thing, we go ahead with, you know, further studies, segmental pressures, ultrasounds, uh, and and arteriography when needed. So are there other significant steps or is there the rest of that you think plays a big part in taking care of wounds or making the assessment for PAD, PVD? Well, I think the clinician's awareness of that as a parameter is huge. In a general medical practice, I think being aware of one of the things that I think is very important is being aware of acute arterial insufficiency. I mean, what we're talking about mostly with peripheral arterial disease and awareness for that is chronic ischemic disease, critical limb ischemia, and that kind of thing, which is limb threatening. But then in primary care, probably in most practices, sooner or later, you're going to see somebody who has an acute event and where they have an acute ischemia. And those kind of people who present with a cold, pulseless, paralyzed extremity that's pale, they need emergent intervention or they'll lose their limb. It'll quickly progress to gangrene. So I think with peripheral arterial disease, there needs to be a constant awareness of acute arterial insufficiency. For instance, if they have a thrombosis or an embolus that blocks off the, for instance, the popliteal artery, they can lose their leg in a matter of hours. Yeah, I saw one case in particular in our uh, urgent care, and he came in and he says, you know, my, my leg had been hurting, and I didn't think too much about it, and then it kind of got worse. And he's like, but while I was here, it kind of got better, and I think it's all fine. And I kind of examined the leg down to the sock level because he had his socks and shoes still on. Didn't look bad. And I said, why don't you go take your sock and shoe off for me? And when he did, his four toes, not his great toe, but his other four toes were gray. Yeah. And I'm like, that's not good. We need to get to the room. <laughs> Well, yeah. and I, I was just going to point out a lot of the times when I send somebody, I shouldn't say a lot of times, not that it happens every day, but I have noticed when I have sent somebody to an emergency room for that type of evaluation, like, hey, I, I think we got some issues here. I don't think that they understand or they're reluctant. They're like, well, I'm at the doctor's office, so you should be able to fix this. And I'm like, hmm. I wish that was that easy or that I could do that, but I do try and do a good job. And I just like Ben, when you come in for foot pain, I just, I try not to just ask questions, which I know sometimes providers are guilty of. And I understand that sometimes when we're in a hurry, but making sure you actually take a look at the injury, getting pulses, feeling for warmth are things that can really help us out and make sure it's not one of those acute type injuries that we need to be watching for? Well, the acute thing is very serious and needs attention, uh, but the Save a Leg, Save a Life program is more about chronic stuff, uh, the critical limb ischemia and stuff that where they have wounds or they have claudication, but mostly wounds because it, it's wounds and gangrene that cost people their legs. And so we're focused on trying to prevent amputation 
and identifying people who, who do have arterial disease and getting them to the right resource where they can get revascularized and, and we can get their wounds to heal. I pulled up the website. That's what I was just doing too. So it's, why. it's, and we'll put the link down in the show notes, but it's the salsal.org, the S-A-L-S-A-L.org. And it says here, awareness is the key to saving lives. The White Sox campaign was created by the Save a Leg, Save a Life Foundation to help raise awareness for PAD, diabetes, and the prevention of amputation. The Sal Sal has developed a pin with a sock on just one end of the ribbon. This is to promote solidarity with our amputees. It also signifies many wound care patients that often can only wear one shoe while the sock or while the foot may be wrapped with the dressing. Many times, a sock is the only outer garment that will fit over the bulky dressings. We are asking physicians, clinicians, and staff across the country to participate in the Save a Leg, Save a Life Foundation's White Sock Campaign. The goal is to raise awareness of the connection between PAD and diabetes and the importance of early vascular care. We do this by wearing one simple and visible tool, a white sock. The white sock symbolizes the many diabetic patients with late-stage PAD who have had an amputation or risk amputation due to delayed treatment. And one of the things where the Save a Leg, Save a Life really comes in is if you have a diabetic who has a below-knee amputation because of vascular disease and diabetes, their five-year survival is 50%. Ooh. Half of them will be dead in, in five wow. years. And that's a worse prognosis than colon cancer or prostate cancer. Wow. So, and it's not because, well, it's in part because they've lost their leg and they lose their mobility. It's, I mean, losing a leg is an incredible impact on your lifestyle and your, your sense of well-being. But it's also because the same thing that's happening to the arteries in their legs is happening to the arteries in their brain and their heart and their kidneys. And it, and it's with diabetics, those are all blocking off. And then that results in other comorbidities. So it tends to be a case of what caused them to lose their leg is just perpetuating further damage throughout their body as well. Correct. Right. You know, if you had a hard time controlling your appetite or controlling your weight with two legs, and being able to walk, it's really hard to control your weight when you can't walk anymore or you're having a hard time walking. So it really increases the challenge. And the other comorbidities that go along with it, congestive heart failure, stroke, and renal failure, just it all feeds into it. So losing a leg to diabetes is a, a very impactful event in terms of survival. So, I mean, for our diabetics and for the clinicians out there that take care of diabetic patients, keeping that diabetes under good control is of the utmost importance then, correct? Right. I've got some anecdotal experiences. We had one guy that had a diabetic foot ulcer and it wasn't a bad ulcer. It was a, it was what's called a Wagner grade two, which is not very deep. But we fought with it for like four months, and he was trying to control his diabetes and doing everything like that. And we were doing everything we had to try and get it controlled in terms of offloading and dressings and good antibiotic stewardship and all that kind of stuff. But his primary care put him on one of those blood glucose monitors, automatic insulin pumps, and his blood sugar went from, you know, running 180 to 210 and stuff like that down to like, boom, 130 all the time. And his ulcer healed in two weeks. Wow. Way to go, primary care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it was amazing how quickly his wound just went zip and closed up 
once he got his sugar under control. And we've had people that have controlled their sugars, and it's not as dramatic, but it is huge. Uh, the difference between a sugar of 180, 210, and a sugar of 150, their glucoses are running, run, running 150 or less. They're, those wounds heal up nicely. Well, so you said something interesting, and I wanted to kind of dive into this a little more. So you said Wagner scale. So that kind of leads me back to, is that specific to wounds? Is that specific to types of wounds? And when I, as a family nurse practitioner, want to send you a patient, what types of things do you want us doing in the primary care setting to try and help you out and make your job better? Obviously, controlling diabetes, doing stuff like that, I totally get. But is there some extra stuff on top that we can be doing to make your job more effective or easier for you? Well, that's an excellent question. I think understanding the Wagner grading is is important for primary care. Wagner was a vascular surgeon in California, I believe in the 1970s, 1980s. He published an article back there where he took diabetics who came into his practice uh, as a vascular surgeon, and he looked at what the wound looked like the day they came in, and then he followed them to their f- final outcome, and he came up with a grading system that predicted the probability of them having a major amputation. And it's a grade one, two, three, and he had four. Some people have added a five, but uh, a Wagner grade one, the risk of amputation in that is very low. If you get up to a Wagner grade four, the risk of at least a partial amputation is like 100%. And in between wow. a two and a three, the gradations are in between. If, if you have a grade, a Wagner grade three wound, the infection has got down into the deep space of the foot. It's in the tendon, it's in the joint space, it's in the bone. You've got a deep space infection and your risk of amputation is over 50% with excellent care. So in terms of what primary care can do is if you've got a diabetic who's got an ulcer or even just a bad callus, get them into wound care, get them offloaded, get their sugars under control and get them debrided and cared for because what happens, a diabetic foot ulcer is like the perfect storm. It can turn really sour in 48 hours. I mean, I've had people that saw their doctor on Friday and by Monday, they were, they were it had just gone to hell. So <laughs> the, the quicker you can get them, convince them to go see a wound care center, the better, because th- there's a whole constellation of things that we do in wound care that it doesn't seem to be common practice that we have techniques of offloading and debridement and management that can can help those people. But once you get to where the infection is deep, the risks are much higher. We can still help those people, but it's a much higher risk of amputation. And that's where you get into the problem with the limitation of their active mobility. It's hard to be positive about life if you've lost a leg. So with the Wagner scale, and we can get off it. I just got one more question for follow-up on that. So let's say I wanted to use that. Is there a certification? Is there a specific training? Is there something that you would suggest for practitioners or general practice physicians to kind of go through to get a better idea of how to use and apply Wagner? Or is it you're going to look at the chart and say, oh, he said he has a Wagner 2, you know, right foot and that's where it is. Well, yeah, if in referring to a wound care center or a vascular surgeon, you tell them, we, I think this is a Wagner 2 or a Wagner 3, 
that would inform them about how quickly they need them to get them in. But identifying the Wagner scale uh, is helpful to us here in wound, in wound care because we know that if it's a Wagner 3, it's really serious and we need to really buckle down and, and the patient needs to buckle down. But in primary care, it's not going to affect what you need to do. Again, if they've got a Wagner 1, Wagner 2, they still need to go to wound care, in my opinion. And in terms of primary care, managing their blood sugar and if they're a smoker or smoking, uh, th- those are very important. But that that's important whether they've got a wound or not. Yeah. Is, is there like a specific training course you would suggest, or is it just something you learn with time and, and research? You can Google Wagner scale, and uh, th- there are other scales that some people feel are better, and they probably are more accurate in terms of actually predictive value in terms of what percentage of these patients uh, are going to have an amputation. There are other scaling techniques, grading techniques that are probably more accurate, but the Wagner is the mo- one that's most commonly used. And it's the one that we use here and it seems to be proficient. And it's an observational study. You just kind of look at the wound and and you can tell. If you want to know more about the Wagner scale, it's online. His article, he published a series of articles back, I believe in the 70s, early 80s, something like that, where he described his grading system. And But again, in primary care, I don't know that you need to get too deep into the weeds in, in a Wagner scale. If they've got a diabetic foot ulcer, my feeling is they need to be in a wound center getting care for that and getting offloaded. The two most important things about healing and preventing diabetic foot ulcers are good sugar control and adequate offloading. Well, we will drop some links to the Wagner scale and some of that stuff in our show notes so that if there are people who want some more information on that, they they can look it up right there. And and, and I can probably give you the citation for his uh, article. Awesome. Yeah. Just have Tammy send that to me or if you want to send that to me, that'd be great. Okay. My other question then from a primary care standpoint, is there anything lab work wise or diagnostic like radiologic exams or anything that we need to do beforehand? Say it's going to be a, a week before we can get them into wound care. Is there something that we can do to help prior to so that you're having to do less of that once you actually see the patient? Well, typically what we'll do is we'll do CBC, CMP and an A1C if it hasn't been done in the last three months. If they've got recent lab that we don't repeat that. If it's a deeper ulcer, if it's a grade two or a grade three, we'll typically get an x-ray of that foot. And if it's a grade two or a grade three, we'll we'll think about getting a, a CRP and a ESR to see if there's osteo. If it's a grade three, we'll probably get those. We don't usually do MRIs right off the bat, but there's there's a lot of room there. And, and I don't know that it's all that important to get all that stuff done before you send them in. We okay. can order those. But, it, but if they've had recent stuff, sending that along is helpful, and then we don't have to repeat it. Antibiotics, we like to do antibiotics in the wound center. I mean, we like to do cultures in the wound center. Uh, if they're already on antibiotics, then we, we delay that until they're off the antibiotics. But if you're seeing a patient and you're concerned about th- their foot being infected, you can do a culture there, but you can also just start them on empiric antibiotics to, to get them to the wound center. That's reasonable also. Okay. The main thing for diabetic foot ulcers is early referral so that they don't progress to a more, a higher grade of ulcer. Okay. Tom, um, we're kind of getting to near the end of the episode here. Is there any, any big questions you have before we jump into our final segment? I don't know that I really have a specific question for Michael. I guess it's like, obviously you have got a wealth of knowledge 
in wound care and the care of these these patients. So I guess my last question would be what other like I know we've covered a wide spectrum of things so far today, but is there any one thing that you want nurse practitioners or PAs or, or newer physicians in, in primary care to take away of what we could do to help with these patients with wounds or peripheral artery disease? Like, what's the one thing? I mean, I know we talked about diabetes and smoking, but like, is there any one other gem you want to make sure to leave with us? Well, I guess one of the things that's most frustrating for me is the lack of patient compliance. And I guess that's kind of across the board. <laughs> yeah, that's not a new one. Doc. <laughs> that's not a new idea at all. But we try to communicate with our primary care providers real carefully. And we send them the initial progress note. We send them every fourth progress note and we try to call them uh, uh, directly uh, as we can. But again, if the primary care can support some of the maneuvers that we're going, there are advanced modalities that we will use. And, and again, I mean, I tell my patients that we specialize in ugly, clumsy footwear <laughs> because the offloading devices are very hard to use. They're challenging, especially for older people, arthritic knees and hips, but the offloading is a significant part for diabetic foot ulcers. Now, in peripheral arterial disease, again, early referral to a vascular surgeon is hugely important, and wound centers should help with that. But if you see somebody and they're having claudication symptoms or they've got a foot ulcer and, and you think it's arterial, getting them in to see a vascular physician early is, is really important also. So uh, those kind of referrals are, are huge and, and can save a limb for a patient. Okay. Well, we'll jump into our final segment here, Michael. It's oh. a fun little—it's a fun little segment that we do with every one of our guests, and it's a—it's called Five Questions. Join us on a journey into the inner psyche of our guest as we ask five, 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 five questions. So we ask the same five questions to every single guest. We don't want you to put a lot of thought into it, just your first answer. It just kind of gives us an idea of more about you. This segment is less, this is a fun segment. This is for us to talk to you about you. This isn't oh, okay. about anything else. And like I said, every guest gets the same questions and we have a pretty good time. Okay. Well, I'll All do right. my best. <laughs> well, question one, Michael, what is your favorite medical word? Oh, Wow. I'm kind of a word guy, so that's a tough one. Oh, probably necrobiosis lipoidica diabeticorum. Wow. Whoa. Say that again. <laughs> Is that my favorite, Tammy, you think? Necrobiosis lipoidica diabeticorum. But there there are some really competitive words out there because I'm I'm kind of a word freak and medical terminologies is fun. A lot of people don't don't recognize the fun, but it's a lot of fun. So wow. every time you put that into a chart, does your spell checker just like want to explode or what happens? No, I've I've trained it. It it likes the word. So I'm gonna have to listen to this three times in slow motion just to figure out how to how to look that word up. So. It's a common condition seen in diabetics uh, and seen in non-diabetics, usually on the anterior shins where there's trauma. And what happens is you get a vasculitis of the underlying dermal 
vessels that causes a necrotic ulcer and chronic inflammation in the skin. And so the old name is necrobiosis lipoidica diabeticorum, but it's now necrobiosis lipoidica because it happens in non-diabetics. I'm telling you right now, there's some kid who's studying for a spelling bee right now that just his head just exploded. Bro. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's like, what's the root? I think it's Greek and Latin. What happened? So, <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a fun term. That is a fun term. I'm going to throw that out there and blow everyone's mind. I'm going to be like, yep, maybe this is what he's got. And they're going to accuse me of making up a word, probably. So, All right, Michael, question two. If you could do any job in the world other than what you currently do, what would it be? Oh, wow. Uh, See, it's a thinker. This is not limited by what my current skills are. No. Anything you want. I would be a jazz pianist. Nice. That's a first. (laughs) i love jazz i love jazz piano solo piano wow i think we did have a jazz someone who wanted to play jazz trombone i think trombone or something yeah but pianist so that's good so do you have a favorite artist george winston hands down because i am very limited i've listened to some jazz in my life but he's not really he's sort of funky jazz i I mean i he's probably not really jazz but but i love solo piano he's kind of jazz he's it's not real. It's not classic jazz piano. He's more. I, I don't know enough about it. Contemporary. Yeah, he's more contemporary. Piano. Yeah. Okay, I'll check some of that out. Yeah, he does some stride. It. He does some stride. All right, I'll, I'll have to find that on Apple Music later. Um, question three, Michael. Think back to your first car. Was it a stylish ride or a rolling turd? Well, it was a good car. It was a Volkswagen. It was a green Volkswagen, and it it, it was a good ride. It, it so, ran well. But would you say it was stylish or was it crap? Yeah. No, it wasn't stylish. It was not <laughs> okay. stylish. Uh, it was, it was, it was as, a, as, a, as a teenager, <laughs> I, I wasn't really cool in my green Volkswagen. <laughs> so it was a Volkswagen. Are we talking a, a Beetle? A Beetle. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, ah. old. I'm really old. This is like 1964. Do you know how much that's worth, by the way, now? Was it a split window? No. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think yeah, those are worth like hundreds of thousands of dollars now. By the way, I just well, want to throw you, that you out there. You would have probably spent it on that to keep it running. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I just I think back to like some of the cars I've driven, and I'm like, man, I did a lot of stupid stuff in those, and they're probably going to be worth money someday, if nothing else, because they're going to be older. So it's just like, oh my god! But if you could go back in time and tell your younger self, hey hold on to that one and you know that day you turn too left too fast and you ding it into something don't do that and it'll be worth a lot of money yeah. so <laughs> all right question for michael if your house is on fire everyone including your pets are safe other than pictures what's the one thing that you want to get out of your house huh wow besides myself yes um, <laughs> um probably my bible i guess i don't know that's a good answer. I'm yeah, that's a good answer. Do you have like a special edition one that is like sentimental to you or just the first one you see? To get out I've, of I've got a really nice leather Bible. Ah, that, okay. I mean, of, of, of the books I have, that would be the one I'd take out probably. Okay, I'm good with that. Question it's, also, I could, it's light enough I could move quickly with it. <laughs> <laughs> see, he's being practical. There you go. <laughs> so. 
not like some of the other people who are like, I'm going to put on every piece of clothing I own. I'm like, really? Like, you yeah, can't. that's a good job waddling out of the house. Yeah. Have fun. <laughs> All right. Question five, Michael, the last one here. You have $9 and 18 cents in your pocket. You're at the convenience store. What all do you buy? Huh? I guess it depends a lot on where I'm going or what I'm doing. I'd probably buy some beef jerky and some water and I'd probably get like a mounds bar. See all great answers. Do you have a favorite water? I, whatever's the cheapest in the cooler. There you go. That's a good plan. No, it's weird. Now that I drink more water, I have found that there are like, it's not so much. There's ones I love more than others. There's ones I like less. And I don't know if that's just a weird thing. I don't think I'm alone in that. I think people have preferences, even in the water. What about your uh, jerky? Is it, is there a particular flavor you like? Um, I go with Jack Link's original. That's my jerky. I I do like original, but I gotta be honest when it comes to beef jerky, it's kind of hard to go wrong. Give me any of it. Yeah. Peppered, sweet and hot. Like, oh, turkey. (laughs) Uh, no turkey. Okay, I got gotcha. I, no, I, I, I like I like beef jerky because it's really low carb. I yeah. mean, yeah. it's major league low carb. And yeah, I, I'm a snacker. So. so shout out to Hard Times Beef Jerky. They make a sweet and hot. Another thing that I love about their beef jerky, each package comes with one of those little flossers in it. That's intelligent. See, yeah, that's, see? Yeah, see? I like those guys out. were thinking ahead. So I'm just saying, well, Doc, next time you're out and about and you see some hard times jerky, you get that. I'll do that. I'll do that. Good stuff. Well, on that, that concludes five questions. So if you like this episode, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast. Our website's www.justsomepodcast.com. Our email, admin at justsomepodcast.com. Also, don't forget that the reason that we had Dr. Nagel on tonight and the reason that uh, we're talking about this is the Save a Leg, Save a Life Foundation and their hashtag White Sock Challenge. We want to see all those pictures. Tag us in those pictures. One white sock on your leg. Show some solidarity for PAD, diabetes, and some awareness of some of that. So make sure that you're hashtag White Sock Challenge. Michael, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get off the air? Yeah, you guys have done a great job. I Uh hope this increases community awareness of peripheral arterial disease and that somebody says, ooh, you know, I've got this sore on my foot. I'm going to go see my doctor and and gets attention for it. That'll save legs and lives. Well, and we hope so too, sir. Play on those notes. I hope everybody uh, has a great week. Hey, everybody, stay safe out there. Thank you very much. Lately I see why I am alone I caught some road bridge and I thought of you And all the many times you say I should have known Took a press so I could find my cheek Find mediocrity's the best that I could do Yeah.